LegalizeFreedom.com Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Beyond politics, poverty and war. LegalizeFreedom.com Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com. I'm your host Greg Moffat and today we present part two of our interview with Jason Horsley discussing his book, The Vice of Kings, How Socialism, Occultism and the Sexual Revolution Engineered a Culture of Abuse. If you haven't yet heard part one, you can find it at LegalizeFreedom.com. That's Legalize-Freedom.com. You can spell Legalize with an S or a Z. The interview resumes as we discuss the false left-right paradigm in politics and how the illusion of choice has been used to placate and deliberately confuse the general population. Today we're going to pick up from where we left off uh, last time. We spoke quite recently and we were talking about your book, uh, The Vice of Kings, How Socialism, Occultism and the Sexual Revolution Engineered a Culture of Abuse. And there were many other things that spun off of that that we got into. Uh, so if people haven't heard that, they'll find a link to that on this interview page. And also, you introduce yourself, a bit of a potted bio and that. So again, if people don't know who you are about your work, they can go back and find that. So today, we'll just more or less drop straight in, if we can. We talked last time somewhat about Fabianism, uh, this faction within, this ideology within politics that you touch upon in the book, and it's very central. I know you said that, you know, you were no expert on Fabianism per se, that you were trying to map its... Uh, its influence. You also pick up on other aspects within our national life, as it were, collective life, that where, where influence is wielded sometimes in a misleading way or in, in a way with an agenda. Hidden agendas, perhaps, is the best way to put it. Fabianism can be seen to represent this, the sort of phrase that I used last time, hidden in plain sight. So starting with politics, would you agree that the left-right duality that we have it exists in some form in most countries, that that is or has been for a long time a hidden in plain sight confidence trick? A lot of people will say, for example, oh, these uh, politicians, you know, you can't left and right, the Tories and Labour, for example, in the UK, you can't get a cigarette paper between them in terms of policy. And yet people will say, also say things like, oh, I voted Labour all my life, you know, like my father or my grandfather before me, you know, and I'm going to keep doing it no matter what said party, how they change over the years. I think mm. one thing you could draw out from reading the political content of your book is certainly that this is something that's been used to kind of bamboozle us like some kind of parlor trick, really, like left and right, like there is a there really is a choice there, and that if you vote for a certain party at one point in your life, that that party are going to be you know people come and go, leaders change, emphasis changes, but at the end of the day, the Labour Party of Tony Blair, the Labour Party of Jeremy Corbyn, it's all the Labour Party. Yeah, well, I was never interested in learning or politics. Uh, I, I think I. I don't know if it was intuitive, 
uh, entirely or if it was based on observing my family, probably both. Um, but I, I never believed in the two-party system or the political party system. I always considered it uh, wolf in sheep's clothing long before I had any kind of anything to back that up with. Um, now the the most useful model I find, because I used to use the old cliche of Coke and Pepsi Cola, and you've got two two manufacturers who basically compete, but they probably, they appear to compete, but they prop each other up because people like to feel like they have a choice. And, uh, and actually, you know, both, both businesses do better with the competition than they would without, even though that seems counterintuitive. Uh, but now I prefer the example because I think it's more, there's more to unpack there of the good cop, bad cop thing, which everybody's familiar with. From TV shows, and basically you've got you've got the the subject who the the objective is to get something out of him, to get him to confess, basically, isn't it? To comply, and uh, and then you've got the one cop who's who's acting like he's a friend and he's really supporting and he's trying to help the guy get you know get off with a, the least severe sentence and you know look out for his family and all the rest of it. That would be the left and the welfare state and all that. And then you got the bad cop who just comes in with his jack boots and, and the phone book and whacks him over the head. And the, the good cop appears to be intervening to protect the uh, the subject from you know the, the right wing fascism of the bad cop. But as we all know, and as any subject you know any person in the interrogation room should know by now if you've seen the TV shows. Uh, it's all it's all a scam. The good cop is 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 no better than the bad cop. He's just got a much nicer, friendlier persona, and it and it plays upon. Uh, I guess it's very deep psychological um, uh, configurations for for people from childhood, particularly the ch- children of divorce, perhaps um, the need. Obviously, the need for a caregiver, and the more that the more traumatized or the more abused we are, the more desperately we reach out for, uh, you know, somebody to take care of us and protect us. And if if we have to, it will be the same person. Even like 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 children bond to their abusers, as we know, and wives to their abusive husbands, or vice versa. Um, so yeah, I think that we're looking at a very deep psychological mechanism that's very well understood by social engineering think tanks and whatnot, the people who create the hidden agendas and uh, and that plays out in in that very cliche scenario, the good cop, bad cop um, on a small scale and, and then on a much larger scale with the, the party political system. It's interesting that you used the word think tank there because one thing that I used to wonder uh, more naively when I was younger, but with more and more kind of frustration and incredulity the older I got, was that I'd hear these think tanks and institutes and foundations and things constantly cited. And sometimes you'd hear the same ones coming up again and again. But often it was like, oh, what's this new one now? What's this new alphabet soup kind of think tank? Where were they from? And what I always used to wonder is like, First of all, who are these people? And often enough, you can find out. You know, you can get a website and it'll list um, who, they, who they are and what they are supposedly about, whatever it is. But I was, I was always, who pays for this? 
Mm. You know, and it's always some office somewhere and it's like such and such an institute fund think tank. They're advising government. And I, what status do they have within the hierarchy of business and politics? And I, sometimes I really don't know. And of course, they always say follow the money. And mm. like, that's why I asked the question, who pays for all this? I don't know if you've ever wondered that when you've, when you've read a study or something that's come out, you know, the government, um, are looking at implementing the recommendations of a such and such a report by the, you know, XYZ Institute, you know, a think tank based in, in Davos, which you're going, what? <laughs> yeah, sure. I mean, some of those I do name in, in the first part of the book, not so well that I can remember them except the obvious one, the Rockefellers. And it, it is almost as though all roads lead to Rockefeller and that, or Rothschild. And, and that is, uh, curious, isn't it? Like, we've got these, these generations of, um, you know, multi-millionaires or billionaires who appear to be philanthropists. Oh, how strange, you know? <laughs> how does that happen? How many billionaire philanthropists are there in the world, uh, in terms of, uh, you know, personality types? Like, how many billionaires tend to be really loving, kind, warm-hearted people who like to help the poor, you know, who like to run a thrift store, for example. Well, no, they don't. They sit, you know, in gated palaces, uh, you know, in, in behind huge desks, desks and whatnot, and don't fraternize with any but their own kind generally. So, so why is it that they're philanthropists? Well, how is that consistent? You know, it's not. So then, so then what's the philanthropy? You know, what, What's behind the desire to fund these various different explorations or agendas or charities or institutions? Because there's so many of them. Well, that, so that's what I'm, I'm mapping with Vice of Kings is it does seem to be, uh, large scale long-term social engineering, which enters into perhaps every aspect of life, but certainly the ma- the major ones. I don't know if it's quite right to say it's micromanaging society, because I think it's macromanaging, isn't it? It's like if you can, there's a lever effect, I think. If you can, if you create the lever, and then you just need to only apply a little bit of pressure, and, and it will have a big effect. Uh, and so I think that uh, a lot of it is like related to that, to an interest in you know, researching and studying and then implementing the findings around very basic aspects of human existence. And of course, the best cover for that is philanthropy, because you, I mean, there are two reasons to want to understand human nature and social configurations. One is to, to help people, and the other is to control people. And, well, there are people who believe that you can only help people by controlling them completely, I think, and those are the people that seem to have by, you know, by natural selection of themselves, I suppose, uh, by natural orientation, they're the people who've taken charge of society. Well, when you mentioned there about, you know, billionaires sitting in gated compounds stroke palaces, I did, I don't think I've met any billionaires, not that I'm aware of, but in my meetings with millionaires, however many millions they had, one fault line along which I could observe some differences, and not in all cases, but in some cases, was between those who had earned their money and those who had inherited their money. And in terms of motivations, I don't know if that says anything, but it might be something that 
that you might be in a position to speak to given your own uh, family background. Yeah, for sure. Uh, well, and I think it's one of the things that I was looking at at least askew, you know, indirectly with Vice of Kings is, you know, how does the aristocracy maintain its edge when, when if you inherit millions of dollars as soon as you turn 18, you, you're not likely to be very motivated. Uh, and you're going to have a very cushioned existence. So you're very likely to end up, you know, overweight on a couch or, or doing heroin or, you know, just on a mad sexual hedonism lifestyle kind of thing, whatever it is, but none of which is very compatible, certainly if it's overindulged with, with, you know, becoming uh, a functioning member of the ruling class. So I know it's a slight digression on your question, but I was referring to the point, the difference between earning money and, and inheriting it. That's one of them is, is that somebody who inherits money tends to be a lot softer or somebody who's, who's worked to earn it, uh, we would think would tend to be, you know, they would have been hardened off by that experience of having to, to actually fight their way and, and make their way in the world. I don't know how it translates exactly into benevolence or, or, or the lack of it, because I think it can go both ways in that regard. Like somebody who's inherited can just be a big, you know, a fat slob and a snob who just feels entitled and just looks down on other people as, as not even human because they've never had, had to, to interact with them. But, but on the other hand, I think people, for some reason Michael Caine is coming to mind, who've had to earn their money by sweat and tears, albeit getting help from those in power, of course, can tend to be very, very stingy and very, very, uh, I suppose, maybe resentful. I mean, they want, they want to, because in, in Britain we have this very, this much more overt class system and the whole thing of uh, trying to make your, break your way from a lower or middle class into the upper class is is difficult in England because it's not just money or it used to be. A couple of things that sprung to mind there were about the uh, the upper classes or royalty or whatever, particularly in the past, not quite so much now, but kind of putting up with the self-made men who'd maybe come up from the, not in, the, in centuries gone by, very rarely from the working classes, but certainly from the middle classes. You know, I'm thinking of like, uh, you know, mill owners during the Industrial Revolution, people like Titus Salt, who would have perhaps rubbed shoulders with royalty just by virtue of the money that he'd made. And uh, I, I can think of like period dramas and comedies where you can see the upper classes and you know, the aristocracy putting up with this terrible boorish oaf who just happens yeah. to have made a fortune, if you see what I mean. Uh, yeah, so yeah. kind of tolerating him. Uh, so that's, you know, that's a dimension of this. And I don't know whether that's, I suppose it's become a little bit less overt now. I mean, I know you said the class system still is very overt, but maybe that's just a little bit more subtle now because although those divisions are there, it's become less acceptable to like outwardly judge people or criticize them or even praise them simply because of their, their, you know, socioeconomic background. I was wondering about if, if, if Trump is an example of this, uh, of, uh, you know, certainly his personality type is, is the crass, you know, outsider who somehow blustered his way into the inner circles. There seems to be an attitude about that around somebody like Trump. I mean, one of the things that has become more 
conscious to me because I, you know, I gave up my inheritance. I don't know if I mentioned it in our last conversation, but at 24, I, I just got rid of my inheritance and went off to Morocco to, to see what would happen without all that money. And I wasn't conscious of the legacy that I was rejecting. I just thought, you know, I need to find out what I'm made of. Um, but certainly n- now that I've discovered as much as I've discovered about my past and this, what I call the closet aristocracy that I grew up in, the, the, the term class traitor has, has come to mind. I think my wife was the first and so far the last to use it beside myself. Uh, you know, nobody in my family has called me a class traitor, although there have been murmurings, I think, of, you know, uh, disapproval of what I've been doing by writing about this. And certainly, oh, you're getting it all wrong. Those kind of murmurings. Yeah, for me, it, there's definitely been the feeling that the inheritance and the legacy that I was born into, I grew into as when I came of age, came with these conditions that I was not willing to accept, that I was I was part of a sort of hidden tradition of aristocratic rule, really, you know, being part of the ruling class, and that there are, yeah, there are certain values, I mean, there's a whole set of values there that more and more I've identified as antithetical to my own sense of value. I mean, really, the inverse of it. When I spoke a few minutes ago, this is another thought that's come back to me um, about, in, particularly in centuries gone by, you know, royalty putting up with, with kind of self-made businessmen simply by virtue of the, the money, you know, and increasingly as we moved into the industrial era and the scientific era, then money was equated with power, not just power structure of old, but in the past, of course, and we talked about the royal family and, you know, someone inheriting titles and mantles and all the rest of it and how that could make them soft and lazy. Whether you agree with how things panned out in the past or not, oftentimes in centuries and millennia gone by, the king would have become king by virtue of strength or maybe even ruthlessness. The king or, or queen, but more often than not king, may have got his position by simply killing, crushing, cajoling, whatever, just physically oppressing um, his competition. And other people you know, stood back and just said, okay, yeah, you got this, you, you got this one. You know, we, we'll, we'll follow you. You're the strongest. So a king like that may have had more in common with a, a self-made businessman, uh, you mm. know, in, in times gone by. And you can see the similarities then between a soft, slobby, uh, sofa-bound uh, royals, particularly those with, without high station. You know, you think of all the constellation of royals there are that in, in the UK and elsewhere that we've no idea really who they are, what they do particularly, but you know, they've just got this, um, pampered lifestyle, no need to actually do anything. And the similarities between, um, you, you hear stories about it from time to time, you know, with kids that inherit, inherit millions, absolute fortunes, sometimes even more than millions, uh, from the, you know, family business or whatever. And, and they, you know, become wastrels and drug users and, 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 you know, generally a waste of space. So it's the same kind of, kind of tendency, isn't it? About the lack of having to prove yourself. Not necessarily by achieving power or money, far from it. You're an interesting example of this. You know, what you felt uncomfortable with, you pushed away um, mm. at quite a young age, and then you've just been finding your way in the meantime. And for better or worse, you've done it. That's It's been you. We've seen what Jason Horsley uh, is interested in, what you can do. And you know more about that than anyone else. Yeah, and a big part of it has been just getting free of that legacy, the burden of the legacy. 
Yeah, because it's very easy to say, can't, couldn't you just take the money and run sort of thing? Or, ah, but you could do so much good with the, the money sort of thing. But then therein lies the seed of that, you know, the philanthropist thing, you know, George Soros type tendency of like, I don't know if George Soros has got kids, but you know, they're kind of like, ah, well, yeah, you know, I don't agree with this, that and the other thing. And I've got issues with how this money was generated, but I shall use it to do good. Yeah. For sure, and I I was going that route before it all bottomed out. I bought a property in Taos, New Mexico, with a rather a bit of a loose cannon friend, and uh, was going to be you know a, a intentional community to uh, prepare for the end of the world. <laughs> That's my vision, our, our vision. So yeah, it was benignly intended, and uh, we were definitely, or I was giving a lot of money to people to help them and trying to provide opportunities and so on and so forth. So I think that that was naturally kind of installed in me, uh, as well as these other drives that became more apparent later, the drive to be the one, the drive to change the world via more anarchistic kind of methods. They, they were both compatible, I think. But I think I think the, the bottom line is is that they just when they didn't come from some inner orientation they just they were they were put into me they were in, conditioned into me and as I said I think I said with you about my father that um, if you if you inherit a set of values that are actually like Jimmy Savile's coming to mind here again they're actually cloaks for 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 other values they're false values that are used to conceal uh, deeper values. Um, then you're going to be all at sea because you're trying to embody the values that you are consciously adopting without recognizing that they're, they're just means to an end that uh, is shackled to these other values that you haven't been told about. Then, then you're just going to end up uh, going round and round in circles or self-destructing, which is what happened with me. Well, you know, when you spoke earlier about almost shades of Stockholm Syndrome, about you know the the political system, good and bad cop, and and how we're you know really like looking for this guidance and protection, and you know as time has gone by, we're finding for various reasons finding less of that at home, you know within the family. Perhaps we should say something about the education system then, because it's something that you reference very often in your book, and obviously you've got your own personal experience of education. We all do. You quote John Taylor Gatto at length in your book, and. Um, I've done a show on his work, and again, people can go back to the first interview and find out what we said about that. But it occurs to me that you also talk in the book about economic ideas as a, a sort of mode of social engineering, and some of those, some dimensions of, of economics, certainly at the minute, are causing structural problems within society, and it's all leading to more atomization of the family, not just family breakup, but you know, more people living on their own, and all sorts of social problems along those lines. Of course, the education system... Uh, you know, the, along the Prussian model that's been established for a few centuries, has always been held out as an unalloyed good, you know, and this is like preparing us for life in wider mm-hmm. society. It never felt like that to me. It absolutely never did. In Gatto's work, and I think you've drawn out some of the threads of his work rather well in your book to do with like how education, at whatever level, this can be everything from the meat and potatoes, uh, the, you know, the, the gruel dished up to, you know, the working classes, in the state education system, right through to that tightly controlled 
uh, well, they, say, they call it public education in this country. What they really mean is private education. You know, that, that system for the elite, as it were. And it's all still very much about inculcating values and a mindset along social engineering lines. Uh, this basic deception again. I mean, I think this goes very deep. Like we don't question, like fish, we don't question the water, we don't question the culture. Because you mentioned that, that idea, that rationale that, that children need to be toughened up prepared for society so that they can succeed and yet what, what isn't questioned there or isn't included in that is, is of course that, that that those children then grow up into people who shape the society the way that it is and presumably that's been going on for hundreds of years so society has been shaped in such a way that yeah in order to succeed it in it, you need to get toughened up, you need to become ruthless. Compassion is the vice of kings, you know, you just need to be able to be willing to, to stomp over everyone and everything you need to, to conquer the territory you need to get, so that you can get your people installed in power and so on and so forth. And, um, so that's kind of become the nature of society and then it's a self-fulfilling thing, but of course what's not being questioned in that, you know, is this a society that's worth maintaining? And, um, that's, that's kind of, uh, I say it's unquestionable. I mean, it can't be questioned, but of course there is the whole other, there's the left progressive thing, which supposedly is questioning it. And yet, which only seems to propagate the, um, the abuses. Like, like I say, with a good cop, bad cop, it's, it's just as abusive to lie to people and trick them into thinking that this is for their own good as it is to hit them over the head with a phone book and, and, and force a compliance out of them. Like in either way, they're being betrayed. What's getting lost in all of this is, is a relationship of trust to, uh, one another. For me, you know, we're talking about money. The economic system, how I experienced that was very overt and it was very uh, palpable and, and very simple. Like my father wasn't at home and he wasn't present as a father because he was out making money. Now that's how many millions of people can say that. And, uh, and when he came home, he was tired and he just wanted to drink. And so he, he wasn't even there when he came home for us as children. So I didn't really have a father in that regard because he was, he'd given his body and soul to the, you know the economy, so to speak, even though he, he didn't like his job particularly. And then the other th way in which this is very palpable is is that our father, who art in business, uh, just gave us money instead of love. Like he didn't really know how to relate to us as a father, so he made up for that in his own mind by just giving us a whole hunk of money. And, and so that was certainly there in my amb ambivalence towards the money. It was like, it was kind of like a payoff. Not only was it blood money, you know, involved in corporate, a corporation that literally was, was, was killing animals and stuff, but also figuratively it's part of, you know, the system I'm saying that's so inherently destructive to, to life and, and love. But, uh, it was also, a, 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 you know, blood money that was a payoff, just saying, here, take the money and, and don't complain. So I think that that's the, it's like what's well, the first casualty of business is, is, um, maybe the family would be the simple answer there. Like the family unit, which was probably the basis of what I was saying earlier, the kind of an element of ruthlessness, which is necessary, which is I'm going to protect 
um, what needs to be protected, what's under my protection. If I'm a man, my wife, my children, my my animals, whatever you know, this is this is the area that I'm tasked to take care of and to make sure it prospers, and I will do whatever it takes to protect it. That's very different from plundering and pillaging. That, that's simply a necessary loyalty and dedication to holding the fort, as it were. Englishman's home is his castle and all that, uh, against the barbarians, so to speak. Which, of course, as we're discussing, the barbarians become the kings, and then they try and hold their power, and then there's a bloodline, I suppose. If they hold it long enough, there's a bloodline and so on. So that's the largest topic we're talking around here, isn't it? But the smaller topic is is just, yeah, what happens to the family and all that, that original unit that, that was did need to protect itself is is being has been sacrificed to the it's been overrun by barbarians really but it's also been recruited so that in my case my father wasn't there to protect us he he brought the money home so he could create the castle but it wasn't it wasn't a home so what good is a castle if there's no central heating and there's no human warmth uh, it's not very different from a prison well, let's just say a word for a minute about a concept that's been going around in my mind for uh, a few minutes now. When we opened up about speaking about political parties and left-right, and you said that early on you'd felt that this whole system was a wolf in sheep's clothing before you'd even really come to uh, any kind of understanding of it. And at our last talk, I spoke about having feeling unease about Jimmy Savile decades before anything, before all those explosive revelations came out after his death. And it was just a sense of something not being quite right. And you can apply this to a lot of this uh, economic claptrap that's um, that's put our way each day, backed up by the aforementioned think tanks and foundations. Uh, you can apply it certainly to the education system and children, uh, many of whom have a visceral reaction against this formal education, all of which, by the way, taking you out of the home, you know, whether it's work, business, going to school, it's all away from the home, away from the family. But the the, the word I'm thinking of here is intuition. And this is something that is quite often poo-pooed, you know, it's kind of like we're uh, in the mainstream thinking anyway, we're discouraged from gut level thinking or going with feelings about things or I, I don't know, this is, just isn't quite right. I sense it, you know, I say, well, that's not very scientific. It's all nonsense. But I don't know if you feel that, um, that you have had intuition about certain things that have guided decisions in your life and whether you feel more intuitive now about people, places and situations than you used to. I would say that intuition is my primary tool, certainly, and it gets me into not trouble, but tight spots conversationally because people mistake me for an intellectual and they also probably get distracted by all the research I do and it's, there's a lot of information there so they they might mistake me for a historian I mean, not literally but you know somebody with that orientation and so on because uh, uh, I do I, w- I want to break down the mechanics and I do of society not literally but to, you know uh, uh, figuratively to look at it better and um, I do use logic a lot, I'm definitely a logician but uh, my primary tool is intuition and I always start from an intuition, like I have intuitive understanding or insights or senses about things and then I, I look into whatever it is to to see what's there you know, that, that might confirm my intuition. I'm stammering now because I know that 
I have been told that that's that's a very lousy, <laughs> that's an anti-scientific method because you just end up confirmation bias. You just end up selecting the stuff that confirms your intuition. But I think that that's a kind of cynical viewpoint because it's it's presuming that intuition is somehow bogus or inherently untrustworthy. And although I I don't rule that out, I think we can definitely have wrong intuitions, but that wouldn't be an intuition, right? When I, when I use the word intuition, I'm using it in, the, I think, the correct sense, which is a felt sense of something that's true, that doesn't rely on logic. Then we can use logic to, to ascertain how accurate that intuition was and keep the awareness that we, there's a danger of confirmation bias. So, yeah, you know, collect a lot of evidence, not just a little bit, and go, aha, see, my intuition was true. And, and you know, vice of kings, okay, Part two, as so I'm hoping we would get to at some point, is about Alistair Crowley and my intuition that the guy was not just as bad as, but even worse than than the, the naysayers were saying, and even himself sort of bragged about that his 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 um, admirers said, "Oh, he was just being a ha ha, wasn't that funny? He's just being a lad and making jokes about being evil." And of course, that means he's not. Well, that's exactly what Jimmy Savile did. He made jokes about being evil, and as he's, and he was, well, maybe not evil, but you know, he's, he was malevolent. And um, as you, you said, you had an intuition about Savile, and it turned out it was true. And now you can find all the evidence you want. Uh, provide substance to your intuition. And my intuition about Crowley was that, yeah, there's something really dark here, which isn't just playful, mischievous, and it isn't just archetypal dark, I'm the beast and I'm the shadow of society. It's dark, dark. It's Jimmy Savile dark, as in systematized, organized, ritualized abuse of children, torture, murder, sex trafficking, stuff that most people do not even want to admit exists because it's just too destabilizing. That kind of dark all wrapped up in an esoteric package that just says, well, this is this is just all part of individuation, you know, becoming whole, integrating the shadow, which is, which is a real cunning delivery device, I'd say, like a sugar-coated pill for the, for the left-hand path of transgression. And I think that's absolutely central to what we've been talking around with the vice of kings or the aristocracy who have to maintain their power and not go soft. They have to maintain their individuated existence from the mass by committing the very acts that they make taboo because they're the rule makers for the masses. So there's this combined thing that I try and address in Vice of Kings that those who create the taboos break the taboos. But that has a limited shelf life because the people that they rule will intuit that back to intuition and also and, and because they intuit it and they aspire to become on a level with the rulers, they will start committing the very acts that are taboo. It's also built into us. It's reverse psychology. There's a sense. And everybody now wants to be an individual. They want to be special. And the way that you become special is you, you, uh, you go against the grain. You assert those behaviors that, that go against the collective. So that's taboo breaking. Uh, so then that becomes more and more prevalent, and then you have the barbarians at the gates. You have, well, how do the ruling class not only maintain their edge by traumatizing their children and so on and committing these taboos, but how do they keep the masses from becoming barbarians? You've got to traumatize them in a different way 
so that they're just dysfunctional, you know, and they're just all on oxycodone, staring at their video games or their smartphones. Uh, and then, but that is still, it's like, how, how long do you sustain that? Particularly when, because part of that I'm talking about is that people do have an intuition. I want to bring it back actually to your question. To, they, they, they do, we all do have an intuitive and a visceral felt, uh, instinctive sense of, of what's going on in society. We feel it. So you can't fool all the people all the time. And, when people uh, know that they're being fooled, then they react, they, they rebel, and so we have all these these movements of outrage in our society, many of which I think are being manufactured to rechannel the outrage which is already bubbling up. Oh, absolutely, yeah, and we, we could talk about, again, we've got limited time today, but in that respect we could talk about the, the role of the media, for example, and, and news organisations and all of that. But, I mean, you touch upon Crowley there, there is... Uh, a lot of material, um, and you've done a lot of analysis of his, his life and his thinking and writing and your own assessment of that. And again, I can just encourage people to get the book to find out about that. But the bottom line being, it was someone that, ha- whose reputation has kind of been put through the, you know, the washer dryer, as it were, and rehabilitated in some ways. And you can certainly find many, uh, positive things written about Alistair Crowley and his legacy and his thinking. Um, out there and a lot of people who just sort of say you know you're following a uh, model for for living um a, a sort of an intellectual model a spiritual path whatever that's basically molded on his thinking and they'll accept oh yes you know he's a drug user and a, a sexual deviant and blah 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 and did a lot of unpleasant things and what have you you know but they'll, they'll, again they'll, they'll rationalize it in a way and um your book's certainly very good on that and and that's a way of saying like Savile, here is an example uh, of of duplicity and of saying one thing and doing another. But really, this again, like Savile, this is a tip of an iceberg. You know, this is not this isn't some kind of aberrant freak example of this thinking behaviour. You know, you're trying to say this is actually endemic. This this is quote unquote the norm. You know, in in some ways, if you look at it purely as a numbers game. Mm. Yeah, well, it's a, again a spectrum because it it trickles down. Like I say, the aristocracy, if we call call them that, the cryptocracy, who who shape the culture and society that we live in, and you know the entertainment, the media, the everything, education, medicine, politics, and so on. They're so instrumental. And this is the thing about Fabianism: is you know, get people in key positions. You don't have to infiltrate everything, you know, 100 percent. Like invasion of the body snatchers. Just as long as there's enough snatched bodies in strategically placed, then then that that is enough to create make the ground fertile for more body snatchers to move in. Until eventually, there's more of 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 them than us depending on your point of view, and then they, they can take over and their, their rule can become overt. I was saying about the cryptocracy. What was I saying about them? <laughs> I have gone and hijacked myself. <laughs> uh, oh, no, no, Trick, the trickle-down thing, yeah. So they, they shape the culture, and thereby... So then all of us who are born into it, and this is my point about Crowley, why I brought my own story into it, I, I uh, imbibe Crowley's teachings... Uh, including, of course, the hidden aspects of them, what appeared to be jokes or irony or satire or coded language. Um, huh, well, that's, that's a paradox, isn't it? Because he, 
he created coded language so you think well he doesn't mean it literally when he says sacrifice a child so then you still take the you know it's it's, it's it's doubly coded or what have you you still take it as if it's okay to 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 follow this this you know this this teaching because he doesn't really mean sacrifice children right so so there's a very subtle thing going on there but in any event what I was trying to get to is the way I took on if you take on uh, a culture then you take on the hidden aspects too and if you take on uh, an element of co culture such as Crowley or Thelema you take on all the hidden aspects too if you're a Jimmy Savile fan and you enjoy his stuff all that's going on under, under the surface your body knows that and you're you're consenting to something that's toxic because it tastes good uh, but you still ingest the toxins you know that they're no less ingested because of that um, your tongue had the good experience but your body's being poisoned well that was my relationship with Curly my mind liked what he was saying and even though it said yeah there's a trap here it, it then said it's okay I'm smart enough to not fall into the trap well that was me that was the sound of me falling into the trap yeah. and that's the whole of our culture I think we we comply and we consent uh, because we want a piece of the culture uh, and, we, and because it offers enjoyment entertainment you know uh, convenience and all that so then we unconsciously uh, consent to all of the uh, um, the costs and the consequences of the culture that we're part of, and so yeah, we 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 become complicit with the cryptocracy while at the same time being under their rule. We're also uh, giving them the power that they need to rule. That concludes part two of our interview. Be sure to tune in soon for part three. <laughs>